their seats and finishing coming in and everything, getting ready to sit down. A couple of uh, things to uh, announce. Uh, I got word this afternoon from uh, Jeff Phipps that everything's going really well at camp. Andy Woods is uh, knocking it out of the park on his topic of teaching these kids about the importance of being involved in a local church as well as um, uh, what to look for, what is a healthy church. We see a lot of kids over the years that have come out of a solid Bible church and they go off to college somewhere and everything is all contemporary and shallow and it's popular and everything else. And so they go off to some, you know, apostate, uh, silly, superficial, sentimental group of Christians. The next thing you know, they're, they're tubing it in their whole Christian life. So, uh, they need to understand what the Word of God says. So we need to pray for Camperete. There are three kids that have, I think, trusted Christ as Savior. So we need to pray for them. Also, we need to uh, put on our calendars and pray for the um, Israel Conference, uh, September 8th through 11th. This is open to anybody. Invite people. Invite friends. Uh, people need to be educated on these particular issues. And then uh, I also have a an updated prayer request from Chafer, Chafer Seminary, and it's uh, I got a couple of pages here, but the bottom line is is that we announced this at the Chafer Conference, and just encourage people to continue to be in prayer for this. We need to hire a full time president, uh, but in order to do that, we need to be able to pay pay his salary. We almost have enough money in the bank to cover. Uh, we believe it's it's financially responsible that if you're going to hire somebody that you should be able to at least lock away two years worth of salary in case something were to happen that you can you can provide for him and we need but but our monthly contributions uh, are do not reflect an ability to uh, to pay for uh, pay pay that salary and that needs to come up by about uh, sixty or seventy thousand dollars a year. So we need to be uh, specifically in prayer for that. We need to. Uh, we're gonna. We need to be able to pay a new president at least sixty-five thousand a year plus uh, health insurance, things of that nature. So we need to continue to pray for those things. We need to pray for students. We need to pray that God would raise up men who are willing to do what it takes to learn to uh, be solid exegetes and expositors of the Word of God. And we need to uh, pray for men who can uh, teach the courses, who are qualified to teach the courses at, seminary, at, at the seminary level. And that's a challenge today because fewer, just as we see fewer and fewer seminary students over the last 30 years come out who are committed to a traditional free grace dispensational position, that means that even fewer have gone on to advanced studies that really qualify them to be able to teach Greek and Hebrew and theology and church history. And a lot of the men that we have, this may surprise you, but a lot of the men that we have relied on for the last 30 or 40 years are be nearing retirement age and are way beyond retirement age and yet they continue to serve the Lord because there's not a retirement plan with the gift of pastor teacher. I've been looking, checking the fine print. It's not there. So we need to pray because these men will not be with us or able to teach for 
much longer. They need to be replaced with the new generation. So we need to be in prayer for those for those needs. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to have a time for a confession of sin, time for silent prayer, time to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord. 1 John 1 9 states clearly that those who confess their sin puts it in a conditional clause as if we confess our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is an implied imperative that if we, because if we don't confess, there's no forgiveness and no cleansing in the Christian life. And for there to be ongoing fellowship, there has to be forgiveness and cleansing of sin. It's amazing. I get questions all the time. And no matter how many times I go over this, there's always a few people who just don't get it and don't want to get it. And sometimes they just, uh, um, for whatever reason, they just can't listen to the and follow the clear explanation of the exegesis of Scripture. Other people get it, a light bulb goes off, and they suddenly realize what's going on. So it's important. Uh, when Peter was washing Jesus' feet, he said, Lord, I'm not going to do, I'm not, or when Peter, when the Lord is washing Peter's feet, he said, Lord, I don't want you to do that. And the Lord said, if I don't do that, and the picture of washing his feet was a picture of ongoing cleansing. He said, if I don't do this, you won't have a part with me and what he, the word he used indicates you won't have an inheritance to share in the kingdom if I don't cleanse you from sin. That's what that pictures. So we always take time to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord as a, as a reminder that we need to keep short accounts with God all throughout the day. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're very grateful for the reports we've heard tonight, reports from uh, Bert during prayer meeting of someone he led to the Lord today, reports from these three people at Camp Arete who have trusted Christ as Savior. Father, we're thankful for the good report of uh, Andy's teaching, and uh, we pray that the kids would really be receptive and understand the import of what he is doing. Father, we continue to pray for others in this congregation who are ill, who are sick, who are struggling with perhaps um, life-threatening diseases or the potential of that. We pray that you would you would heal them. We know that there's a couple that are without jobs and struggling with health, and we pray for them that you would sustain them and provide for them and strengthen them, and that we as a congregation would be um, would be open to doing whatever we can to try to encourage them and help them. Father, we pray that as we study tonight that we might be reminded of the importance of our devotion and obedience to you, that authority orientation is really at the heart of grace orientation. 
and we need to understand that you're the one who's in charge. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we're just going to focus this week, and this will lay the foundation for a couple of weeks of important study on on the implications of this verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 23. Now, to remind you of what has happened is that Saul has been given an operations order from the Lord to completely eradicate and destroy, annihilate the Amalekites. And this is given in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3, told, Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. It's an exhaustive list. Kill everyone down to nursing children, babies, it doesn't matter, male, female, old, young, it's it's part of what is called harem, the ban. Uh, this is an important word to understand, is that they're devoted to God for judgment. They are, the word is normally translated ban, but it's a prohibition that, that this is not being done to somehow um, feed the desire for revenge among uh, the Israelites, and it's not being done in order to uh, gain plunder because that's completely prohibited. Everything is devoted uh, devoted to the Lord, and we went through a study of what, why this is different from so-called holy wars that are carried out in the name of, of uh, Allah, in the name of uh, Islam, and the so-called holy war of the Christian crusades. Uh, jihad is a methodology for spreading uh, spreading Islam, and it is it is in obedience to the Quran and the Hadith. In uh, the Christian Crusades, were in violation of the ethics that are taught in uh, in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. A lot of people say, well, it's just just a violation of New Testament, but it's violation of of Old and New Testament because once we understand what the Bible taught about harem, uh, it has no application after the time. Uh, of uh, Saul and David. So what happens is that 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 Saul completely disobeys God and while there is a great slaughter, they do not slaughter everyone or all of the animals. They were to kill the sheep, uh, the ox, the cattle, all of these things, the large cattle, the small cattle, but they failed fail to do that. And so uh, we're told when we look down at verse um, verse 8, that, that Saul also took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to harem them, to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly, utterly destroyed. So then we uh, ended at verse 10, or approximately there last week, with Saul, uh, Samuel's reaction to Saul's disobedience. We read there, Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And he grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Now, a couple of things that I want to point out here, and that is when we when we talk about the Lord, 
here he says, I greatly regret. Now there's a earlier place in the scripture where the Lord says the same thing, and that's at the time of Noah. And this is the Greek, I mean, excuse me, the Hebrew word, Nacham. And Nacham means to be sorry. It means to uh, possibly to repent, although it's more of an emotive word, or to regret. In some cases, in some forms, it has the idea of being comforted or comforted. What God is, and I think that uh, the old King James says, it repenteth God in um, uh, Genesis chapter 6. And this is extremely confusing. Uh, Most of you were here, and you listened to the lessons, uh, the lesson that I gave to uh, Sunday a week ago, as we were in Matthew chapter uh, chapter 21, uh, verse 30, 32, talking about the difference between two Greek words, uh, metamelamai, which is often translated relent or regret or to be sorry, and then another similar word, metanoeo, which is translated to repent. Now, metanoeo means to change your mind. Uh, the word metamelami has that emotive content. It's not a thought word. It's more of an emotional word to be sorry for something, to regret that you did something. And anybody here who's a parent or has been a child knows that children have are often extremely sorry for something that they have done, especially when that is approaching some sort of punishment, uh, especially if it involves a a spanking. They are extremely sorry. That doesn't mean that any behaviors change. They haven't metamelamide. They only regret. They're only sorry. It's it's an emotional, uh, emotional concept, and um, and so when we get to this word in um, in in the New Testament, metamelamide and metanoeo and repent. One of the things I pointed out is a great confusion people have is the relation of repentance to salvation. The word repent is not used anywhere in the Gospel of John, uh, but John over 85 times uses the word believe. What is the key to salvation? How is a person saved? They believe Jesus died on the cross for their sins. Again and again and again, it's an emphasis on belief. In a few passages, maybe two or three, you have repent and believe used together. But in most places where you have the word repent used in a context that might relate to salvation, you don't have the word believe. Because the idea of repent is you're changing your mind about something. And what you're changing your mind about is who Jesus is and what he did for you. You're changing from rejecting him or not believing in him to believing in him. And so... Repentance is really included within the idea of belief or trust as you are changing your mind to trust trust the Lord. But in a lot of denominations and a lot of theological systems, you have people who think that what you're repenting from is your sin. And sin doesn't have anything to do with the gospel other than understanding that because of Adam's original sin, you're spiritually dead. And because you're spiritually dead, you're going to end up in the lake of fire. But all sin was paid for by Christ to the cross, so sin isn't the issue. What the issue is the cross. That's the gospel of grace. And so for a lot of people, they think, oh, you need to repent of your sin. And they think that, see, the way they treat that is repenting inherently means to repent of sin. But when you get into the Old Testament, 
and you look at the use of this word nacham, which has that idea of repenting or changing your mind, that that God is not repenting of sin. See, the idea of sin as the object of repentance isn't part of the meaning of the word repent. Uh, God doesn't sin. He doesn't need to repent of sin. So you can't say that sin is part of the semantic value or the basic meaning of the word repent. It just means to change your mind. Another word that is often confused with it and sometimes is related to it is to turn, turning from disobedience to obedience. But when it's used of God, God is not a God who repents in this sense. But, and we'll see that a little later on in, um, in, this, in, in this chapter. We read down in verse 29, and also the strength of Israel. This is a new name that we'll see that Samuel gives to God. The strength of Israel will not lie nor relent. And that word for relent is naham. So in verse 29 we read, and also the strength of Israel will, does not lie nor relent. And yet in this verse it says, God says, I greatly regret using the same word. Seems like a contradiction. Now that's the kind of thing that liberals would just love to point out. And see, the Bible contradicts itself. Here in one chapter, God has Nacham. And then just a few verses later, the text says, God is not a man, he does not, Nacham. And so it's important to understand something called figures of speech. When we talk about the fact that we as evangelical fundamentalists, we believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, and that the Word of God should be interpreted literally, a lot of people take that to a wrong conclusion and think that that means that we don't believe in figures of speech. The Bible is filled with figures of speech. You have metaphors and similes. You have uh, hyperbole, which is exaggeration. You have oh, all kinds of things called synecdoches and merisms and metonymies, things that you never studied in school unless you happen to go to Bible college or seminary where you studied the figures of speech of the, of the Bible. So this is a figure of speech called an anthropopathism. Now, an anthropomorphism, these are two terms that are used, an anthropomorphism is, is a similar concept. I want to talk about that first. An anthropomorphism, that word comes from two Greek words, anthropos, meaning man or human, and morph, uh, from uh, morphe, which indicates a form. So it's attributing to God a human form that God doesn't actually possess in order to teach us something about the plan and the purpose of God. You also have um, zoomorphic statements. A zoomorphic statement is a statement that attributes to God uh, a, the form of an animal, such as uh, the wings of an eagle, uh, underneath his wings we are protected, that, that kind of a phrase. God doesn't actually have wings, uh, but you're using that as a figure of speech, attributing to him the, the form of something related to an animal in order to communicate uh, a certain principle or policy 
about God. Now, the key is to understand that in a zoomorphism and in an anthropomorphism, by definition, God does not actually possess that which is attributed to him. Now, that's important. He doesn't have arms and eyes and nose. Um, He's got, he is spirit. He's going to have some sort of form, but it's not a bipedal hominoid. We don't know what his form is. Now, we come to this kind of a figure of speech, and it's called an anthropopathism. From the Greek word anthropos, which means man or human, and the Greek word pathos, meaning feeling or emotion. And so this is, again, a language of accommodation that ascribes to God human passions and emotions and thoughts and attitudes, like remorse or regret, that he doesn't actually possess. But we attribute that to him. We attribute to him these human emotions and uh, passions because it helps us to understand to some degree through the language of analogy that uh, something about the person or the policy of God. So we have phrases like God's grief, repentance, vengeance, hatred, anger, uh, jealousy. There's a lot of debate and discussion about these things among theologians. They say, well, and, and there's those who believe that God, the term is impassable. And what that means is that God, God's core being isn't changed. It's, it's, it, there's, there's not a change in his past. Uh, it's impassable. It's not, not passable or penetrable. God is not going to change by, because of human behavior or human actions. And um, I remember talking with uh, one person who had written an article about uh, God's emotion, and one of the examples that he used, he used several of these examples related to the anger or the wrath of God. And I said, I said, whether we agree or disagree in the final conclusion, one of the things that you haven't thought through very well is that the the Hebrew for the anger of God is not a literal statement. It's a figurative statement. It's an anthropomorphism. If you read the Hebrew, the Hebrew says God's nose burned. That's an idiom for God, for, for anger. If you, somebody in Hebrew, if somebody got angry, you'd say their nose burned because they got all red in the face, get all upset. And so that is a, that's a figure of speech. Now, when it's applied to God, God doesn't actually have a nose. It doesn't get all bright red because his blood pressure is going up and his face gets red. That doesn't actually happen. He doesn't actually possess that. So the, the imagery for wrath of God is an anthropopathism based on an anthropomorphism. So how can you say God literally has this emotion? Hmm. I said, you know, this is the problem with a lot of these so-called emotive terms in Hebrew and in Greek is they're based on the physiological parts of a person's uh, body where he feels those emotions, especially in Hebrew. 
his his compassion is often related to the idea of of the bowels you 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 and 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 things like worry and anger are also related to the the inner organs of man because when you're really worried and upset your stomach's upset your bowels are in an uproar all of these things are happening and so it's 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 a uh, it's a figurative use so when we attribute emotions to god we have to be very, very careful because he doesn't actually possess these. When we think of human emotions, they're a response or a reaction to something that happens. In this case with Saul, what happens is that, that Saul did something and Samuel is grieved. But Samuel just found out about this. God says, God says in this verse that I regret this. Now, let's factor in God's omniscience. When did God find out that Saul was going to disobey him by not fulfilling the harem? When did God discover that? God never discovered it. Because God's omniscience, and in omniscience, God always knows everything there is to know. He doesn't ever acquire knowledge. So if the emotion is a reaction to what what you know then if God has always known that Saul was going to um, disobey him and then he regrets it, then God would, if, if this is literal and he has emotion, then what you're forced to the conclusion is God's always been, uh, always been remorseful about Saul's disobedience. And I got some real problems with that. Um, because that means God's eternally angry. And if you're talking about something literal, or if you're just trying to communicate uh, that, what, that, that this is expressing God's policy towards, towards Saul because he's, been, he's disobedient, now that he's disobedient, God's, God is going to, from our perspective, go to plan B, but it's always been plan A in God's plan. So we get into these murky waters thinking about emotion and omniscience and all of these things. And we have to remember God is immutable. His omniscience never changes. He's always known these things. He has created us in his image. And we have to be careful, though, not to reverse the process and create God in our image. Okay? So... This is an anthropopathism to express uh, God's change of policy toward Saul. He says, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. Now, when we look at verse 29, where where Samuel says that the strength of the Lord will not lie nor relent, he's thinking about this in a non-figurative way. He's thinking about this in terms of, an, of God's eternal character, that God doesn't change his mind. He's, his plan is immutable. Um, but to us, that's what the other part is like in that figure of speech. So we have to understand it uh, this way. And this isn't difficult. This isn't just trying to um, come up with some sort of rationale to explain away an apparent contradiction. It, it's how language often works. 
Uh, you read many people and uh, writers and poetry and things of that nature, and uh, they will they will use language in this way and within a paragraph or within a sentence change the nuances of a word that they are uh, that they are using. And we see at the end of verse eleven Samuel's response as a human being it grieves him. It grieves him because. God's character has been violated. This is not a self-centered grief. This is not a grief that's a result of of uh, uh, Samuel not getting his way. It's not self-centered. It, it therefore doesn't flow from his sin nature. Remember, the Lord had lupeo, uh, which is translated grief and sorrow at the Garden of Gethsemane, as he is anticipating the cross but it doesn't lead him to sin. The Apostle Paul told us to inform people that uh, the dead in Christ would rise first when the Lord returns at the rapture. And at the end of that section, describing the rapture, he says, comfort one another with these words. Why? First statement in that section, he said, we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. So grieving isn't a sin. Uh, grieving for the wrong reasons may be a sin, but grieving in and of itself is not a sin. And Samuel grieves, and he cries out to the Lord all night. Samuel felt the rejection of God by Saul very deeply, profoundly, because this shows us that Samuel is so devoted to the plan and the purpose of God. But he doesn't use this as an opportunity for personal sin. We have to be careful with that because many of us have a great sensitivity to uh, to the truth of the gospel, the truth of scripture. As part of that, we have a great commitment to, the, uh, to honoring the literal uh, meaning of the Constitution, the importance of the Constitution. It's real easy in this political season. Now, I know this doesn't apply to anybody here, but it's easy for some people in this political season to get really angry with people who don't agree with you politically. And we can't do that. Because what we're doing is we're, we're, we're letting those people who don't agree with us get us out of fellowship. We're putting them in control of our spiritual life. And we can't do that. Just because you can confess it doesn't give you the free it doesn't give you the right to just say oh well i'm just going to get angry with those people and i'll confess it later that's what jim jim myers calls that prebound <laughs> you know confessing ahead of time that well lord i know i'm going to i'm going to succumb to this sin so i'm just going to confess it now and then it'll all be okay See, that just shows a very, very shallow view, very shallow view of sin. So, in verse 14, verse 14, uh, Samuel is going to go to, uh, going to call, go to Saul and challenge him. He says, he walks up. Now, I want you to get a sense of what this is like. Okay, there's a big crowd of people here because he's taking, Saul has taken the army back to Gilgal, which is a major uh, site ritual site in Israel. He's going to take him back to Gilgal, and there he's going to have a sacrifice. And he's taken all of these prime animals from the, from the Amalekites. And that's just not two or three. 
He's taking a large number. He may have several hundred sheep and several hundred oxen and several hundred uh, uh, cattle that he's taking back, and he's going to sacrifice some of them. We think about the sacrifices related to the um, uh, establishment and the inauguration of the temple and how many animals were sacrificed by, by Samuel. So there could be quite a few here. It's going to sound and smell a lot like the Houston Stock Show or what those of us who are real Houstonians call the Fat Stock Show. And or if you've ever been to the stockyards up in Fort Worth, or as they say it up there, Fort Worth, if you've ever been up there to the stockyards and you'll have a sense of what it smells like and what it sounds like as Samuel is threading his way through the animals and through uh, the Israelites who have their uh, plunder from the Amalekites. And he's saying, what's this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen, uh, which I hear? Because he's not supposed to be hearing any of this. All of this is supposed to be, be uh, all, all of them, are, uh, the animals are supposed to be dead. And then we get Saul's rationalization. And this is, I want you to think about this. This is not just, he's not just on the spot making up a story, Okay. He really has convinced himself that he's following God's command. And the reason I say that is how many people in history, how many Christians in history have committed horrible things in the name of God or in the name of Christ, thinking that they're doing what Scripture says to do because they have distorted it in their own mind. And we've all done that. We've all justified wrong things, and somehow we've managed to twist the Scripture to where it doesn't say what it really says, and it says something else in order to, that we can do what we want to do. So Saul said they, they, they brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep, the oxen, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. There's our word harem again. See, what, he, what God said to do, though, was to destroy them all. And he can't see. This is what carnality does. It blinds us to the reality of our own sin. And what he's doing is he's thinking that, by, that, that he's going to do a good thing. See, in, in religious thinking, we always think that we can help God somehow, some way justify that 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 what whatever we're doing is is really okay, and I'm sort of reminded of the, the stripper, uh, topless dancer here in Houston that uh, got saved, and so she wanted to be a good witness, so she had John three sixteen tattooed somewhere below her navel. <laughs> See, we we think of all sorts of ways. That, that we're just blind to what, what sin is. So we think we can justify it somehow. I'm glad you all enjoyed that illustration. That is a true story from what I hear. So he's, he's justifying it, but he's blind to the fact that he's justifying it. He's not just saying, oh, I'm in trouble now. I've got to make up a good story. He really has convinced himself that this is okay. Now, the word harem, I wanted to add something here um, just so we understand. This is the Hebrew word harem, and as it's spelled in Hebrew, it's got the vowels of two E's in there. But remember, in Hebrew, it only had consonants 
when it was written. So it's just the hate and the, the, the CH and the R and the M. Now, the Arabic word harem is a cognate. Now, this is a good lesson to understand the core meaning here because these languages are very, very, very close. The Arabic term harem describes the area of a Muslim household that is set apart for the women, for the wives, for the concubines, for the female servants, and males are prohibited from entering. See, that captures the idea of of this idea of harem. They're, they're devoted or separated. Uh, the Amalekites are devoted or separated to God, and it is prohibited for anyone to to uh, partake of the plunder of, of those people. That's the idea there. It's not for the personal enrichment of the Israelites. It is to bring judgment upon them. So it has that idea of being set apart and that others are prohibited from entering that area. And uh, the in fact, the Arab... Arabic word haram, haram, is the same idea that if you're if you're Muslim, you can't partake. You're not supposed to partake of alcohol or tobacco or pork or a number of things. Those are all haram. Same idea. It's prohibited. It's set apart. You can't uh, you can't touch it. So that's just something I, I wanted to add. I just ran across this related to the cognate this last week and wanted to add that. So what's happening with Saul and what happens with you and with what happens with me is that we, since we were about a year old, we have mastered, we've got our master's degree and our PhD in arrogance. And and as soon as we could start twisting our parents uh, around our little finger, we went, aha, it's all about me. And it's it, it'll take the rapture or death before that your arrogance is lost. Starts with self-absorption. It's all about me, 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 me. And then what, because it's all about us, we want to indulge ourselves in all kinds of ways. And what's interesting about the way arrogance twists itself in our mind is for some people, self-indulgence goes towards materialism, and we're going to get every, we're going to spend our money on everything that makes us feel good and everything that makes us look good and everything that we think is going to make us happy. And we're going to get all those pheromones just hopping and popping all the time. So we really feel good from whatever it is that, that, that we're indulging for ourselves. But for other people, they're going to get their, uh, their grins from giving up. Their, their, their trend is towards asceticism. And so they're going to give up. They're going to be involved in a lot of religious activity, and they're going to think that this somehow makes them much more acceptable to God, and that's going to excite them. And you get two Christians in a room, one Christian with the sin nature trending towards lasciviousness and one Christian with the sin nature trending towards legalism, and you're going to have a cat fight. But the problem is they're both wrong, but they don't want to admit that they're both operating on arrogance. Now, because they've mastered the third skill, which is self-justification. We've learned from an early age that when we do something wrong, we can come up with a really good rationalization for why it's really the right thing to do and why it's not our fault. We're going to justify ourselves. Adam mastered it almost instantly when God showed up in the garden and he said, Lord, it's the woman that you gave me. He manages in one statement to blame Eve and to blame God without having to take a breath in between. 
And, and we do the same kind of thing all the time. We find some reason to justify why we should do what we're doing when we know it's wrong. And that leads to the next step, the fourth step, which is self-deception. And see, this is exactly where where we find Saul. He's in a state of self-deception. And he says, but, but we saved them out so that we could worship the Lord. Isn't that a good thing? The end justifies the means. So we're going to worship God. Isn't that what God wants? The, the law says that we're to have uh, sacrifices and we are to uh, provide the, this, this good for God, and totally ignoring the fact that God gave him specific instructions not to do something. And ultimately what this does is it leads to self-deification. We make ourselves into a God. Now, I want you to understand that concept because that connects to idolatry. And we, when we get to verse 23, we're going to read that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And what this is talking about for us is that this is, we've made an idol out of our own values. And it doesn't matter what gods are. What matters is what we think is right or wrong. Now, Samuel is not going to put up with this. He is going to, and this is a great example of what should go on, maybe not in a hostile or confrontational way that's quite this strong because the circumstances are different, but this is what can take place if you're in some sort of counseling situation. Now, as soon as I use the word counseling, I know a lot of you are thinking about somebody on a couch talking to a counselor or somebody's come in to talk to the pastor. I'm talking about you counseling your kids or your grandkids. I'm talking about you counseling your your son or your daughter or your son-in-law or your daughter-in-law or yourself or your wife not putting up with the, with the uh, self-deception and point at being able to, uh, depending on the circumstance, point out uh, what the Word of God says, that that is the standard. Uh, so that's this, this is a harsher form here because of the circumstances, but Samuel is just being a good Christian counselor here, and he basically says, shut up. I don't want to hear it. I don't need to hear all of your rationalizations and justifications for disobeying what God told you. And I'm further, now we can't say this second part because none of us are prophets. We're not receiving revelation from God. We may talk about what the scripture says, but we can't make this next statement. Samuel says, I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And so at this point, he's he's a prophet. He's established that it's God's authority, not his authority. God's opinion, not his opinion. And so Saul at least is willing to say, okay, I'll shut up you keep talking. So he says, speak on. So Samuel says, when reminds him of the past so that he can tell him what's going to happen now in the present and the impact this will have in the future. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, when remember at the beginning when Saul was going to be anointed by Samuel, he said, I'm from a little tribe. I'm from a little clan. I'm insignificant. It says, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? God elevated you and put you in authority over all of Israel. Did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? God is the one who anointed you. The subtext here is, as the king, you were put in that position by God, 
God is the one who is in authority over you. You are not the ultimate authority. That is always the problem with human government is that human government leaders think that they are the ultimate authority and that they're not answerable to God. And this applies to people in city council, mayors, governors, uh, vice presidents, presidents, members of Congress. They all fall into this trap far too often, which is why they probably shouldn't be there for very long because they they um, get overly impressed with their own position and prestige. So it's the Lord who anointed him over Israel. So you've got to submit to God's authority. Then verse 18, he said, Now the Lord sent you on a mission. You had an operations order, and God said, Go and harem the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed, until they are annihilated, until they are completely eradicated. Those are some of the other English words used to translate this idea from the Hebrew. And then he asks the pertinent question. See, whenever you're involved in some kind of counseling, you're helping somebody, you're talking to your kids, your grandkids, somebody, um, you've got to let them discover the truth on their own by asking them questions. Don't just tell them. Let them sort of go through that path of self-discovery a little bit so that it has a little greater impact. Said, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? So you could have declared it. You know, Jesus was a master of this. We've been studying this in Matthew 21 as he used these rhetorical questions to expose what was really going on in the sinful hearts of the Pharisees and Sadducees and all the other religious leaders. He says, why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And I want to point out the word here. When he says, why did you not obey? He uses the word shema. Uh, this is the uh, Hebrew word meaning to hear or to listen. And in Hebrew, you have not listened if you haven't obeyed. That's the connection with the word. You may tell your child uh, 15 times not to do something, and then when they do it, you'll say, well, why didn't you listen to me? So it doesn't just have to do with their eardrums being stimulated by the sound of your voice and that they understood the dictionary meaning of the terms that you used. It has to do with real listening means obeying and responding positively to what is being said. And that's biblical. So Saul responds and he says, notice this. Now, if you're ever in a position where you're trying to advise your children, especially your teenagers or college kids, or sometimes the 20-somethings, or your grandchildren, or your spouse, or your, uh, somebody who works for you, and you expose what has been going on in terms of disobedience, they'll often, they, they just slip, without even thinking about it, they slip right into self-justification. This is what Saul does. But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I did. I killed them all. In his mind, he's thinking that he really did it. And that's how we are. That's how I am, and that's how you are. You say, well, I'm, I'm, I've done what the Lord said to do because we've blinded ourselves to our own sinfulness because we're so adept at rationalization to our sin that we slip through it without even being conscious of it. So that's what Saul says. I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission which he sent me, and I brought back Agag, king of Amalek. 
And what he says just directly contra, but he doesn't see the contradiction. It, it, it's just like Bill Nye, the science guy. He can hear the truth from uh, Ken Ham, and he it, it doesn't even register. Because when you're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, you're blinding yourself to reality. And so you, you don't even realize it when you're saying that this is a black sheet of paper. You're convinced it's a black sheet of paper. That's the trouble with sin. It distorts and twists our own thinking. It says, I brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I've utterly destroyed. I've harmed the Amalekites. Well, wait a minute. It's not until David comes along later that there's going to be a further slaughter of the Amalekites. So obviously they didn't kill them all. He said, but the people, to, the people now, here's another part of self-justification, is we blame other people. It's really not my fault. The people wanted it. And very well could be that the people wanted it, but it provides him a way to skirt the personal responsibility. The people took of the plunder, sheep, and oxen. Now, my mother would say, so if everybody else cuts off their nose to spite their face, are you going to do it? That's what he's saying, is that I'm just going to do, uh, I'm going to do what the people said to do because I'm just just a milquetoast leader, and I'm just going to do what the people say to do, and I'm not going to lead. He's just blaming the people. He's trying to avoid personal responsibility. The people took of the plunder, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed or harmed to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Notice how he says that. It's the Lord your God. Now, a lot of people try to make this into something it's not. Some people say, well, this proves that God wasn't, wasn't Saul's God. That's not what's going on here, because there are too many other places that, that, that there's more significant things going on with, with Saul. It, it, he's emphasizing, this is, this is your God. This is what your God told me to do. He's not saying it's your God versus not my God. He's just saying, this is what your God said to do, and I did it. Um, he's convinced he's right. He's totally blind to the truth. So Samuel says, as the Lord is greater delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Now this introduces a <clears throat> two verses here that are in poetry in the, in the Hebrew. And so it's got to be exegeted and understood with reference to poetry. Poetry is not interpreted the same way that you interpret legal literature. You don't read a Shakespearean sonnet the way you read the Constitution of the United States. You don't read uh, a Shakespearean play the way you read your mortgage contract. You can have words used in both documents, but words that are used in poetry have... Poetry gives you a little more freedom. They're a little more fluid in their meaning. They're a little broader. There's the use of figures of speech. So poetry isn't read or interpreted the same. Now, that doesn't mean that you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean, which is what your sixth-grade elementary teacher taught you. 
what you learned when you were in the seventh or eighth grade reading uh, literature and poetry, that, that the meaning of the poetry is in your mind, not in the mind of Wordsworth or Coleridge or somebody like that. I'll never forget the time I finally woke up and learned that English poetry was, I could really understand it. I had a an elderly, probably, she was probably in her 60s at the time. I was 20, so anybody over 30 was elderly. Uh, my my uh, was Between my junior and senior year, I, w- I had a second major. I had a primary major in history and a second major in, uh, in English because if you were in the state of Texas and you were getting a teacher certificate, you had to have a double major. And I had to take this one course, and I'd heard all these horrible stories about this one professor, Dr. Wyatt, and that she was really hard and difficult. Well, if you're already postmodern and you've been you've already bought into a figurative interpretation of everything, and somebody comes in and they're a literalist, and they're going to interpret British poet British romantic poetry in the nineteenth century just like I would interpret the Psalms, and that you're going to go into the life study the life of the Pope. When did he write it? When did Coleridge write this? When did Wordsworth write this? What was going on in their life when they wrote that? All of a sudden, she was using those methods that we use in the Bible, looking at the time, the place, the circumstances surrounding these these poets, and all of a sudden, it came alive. And and it was like, like I had this whole new discovery that that you really could understand poetry and it had objective meaning that was in the mind of the writer who was communicating something. So that's what we have here in these two in these uh, verses. So the question that sets the stage is the one at the beginning has the lord as great a delight. Now as soon as you read that there's a comparison going on here. Is God as delighted in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience. The implication is he's going to value one more than the other. And he's bringing out this point. And then he drives it home. First, he asks the question. Asking questions is a great way to get people to think about the answers. It's taken me a long time to learn that. Uh, Ask questions. Get people to think it through on their own a little bit. Don't be in a hurry to drive your truck into their brain. Give them time to think it through by asking them questions and being patient. And it's probably never, the question you asked them probably never occurred to them before. And they give them a little time to come to the answer. So Samuel says, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience? What do you think the Lord wants, obedience or sacrifice? And then he answers. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed or to listen, that is listening with obedience, than the fat of rams. So you see a synonymous parallelism here between obey and heed and sacrifice and the fat of rams, because the fat is what was preserved for God, that was set apart to God. I, I still don't know why. I've worked on that. I've talked to Jay Collins about that. I've talked to Randy Price about that. I've talked to a lot of people. What's the big deal about the fat? Why is that valued? Uh, I don't know. 
But it was. The fat, the better part. I know when I was a kid, when my dad would grill steaks, I always loved eating the fat. And I think it has something to do with that, that 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 made it better. You know, we all would prefer a nice, well-marbled um, ribeye than to a, a, a less fat, a more lean piece of meat because the, it's the fat that gives it more flavor. Maybe that's why. Hosea 6.6 6 echoes the same thing. Now, Hosea writes at about the same time as Isaiah, and he is indicting the, the, the kingdom of Judah. He says, and God says, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. The burnt offerings and the sacrifices are just ritual designed to teach about reality. The reality is obedience. The reality is having a relationship with God. The reality is knowing God. The reality isn't the training aid. The rituals are just, the sacrifices are just training aids. Don't substitute the training aid for the relationship with God. Ultimately, what God wants is that personal relationship. In Psalm 51, 16, and uh, 17, this is uh, David's uh, confession to God for his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Urias is to God, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. For the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Now, that's usually misunderstood. What it means is a broken spirit is a spirit that is put under the authority of God. Like you would break a cat, uh, 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 a cat um, like you'd break a horse, uh, or you would break uh, a, an animal that you're going to ride, a donkey, or you're going to um, ride the donkey, ride the horse, and so you have the colt, and you're uh, breaking it so that it can come under your authority. That's the idea of a broken spirit. It's an idiom for humility and authority orientation. That's Saul's problem, as we're going to see. He's, a, he's rebellious, just as many of us are at times. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. It's just describing submission to God's authority as opposed to disobedience. He says, these, O God, you will not despise. Proverbs 21.3, to do righteousness and justice it's more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Again, it's because the ritual is just a training aid to understand the reality. And see, this was a problem that Israel slipped into. It's a problem they slip into at the time of Christ. It's a time every legalist slips into. It's substituting the, the, the form for the reality. And so in the time of Isaiah, which is roughly around 700 B.C., he is challenging those in Judah with the fact that they have made their relationship with God, they've reduced it to legalism and ritual and formality. In Isaiah 1, 11 through 13, Isaiah says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? You're doing everything right according to the law, but you're not being obedient. And the purpose to understand the sacrifice is to understand the importance of cleansing and obedience to God. What purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? 
I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of your assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. What they've done is they've just reduced it to legalism and ritual and formality, just like what the Pharisees did by the time of Christ. He said, God goes on to say, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. See, that's what a great verse you can pray and I'm going to hide from you. I remember some years ago when a president of the Southern Baptist Convention made the statement that God doesn't hear the prayers of Jews. God doesn't hear the prayers of most Christians either. He could have nuanced it a little better, but God doesn't hear the prayers of anybody who's not A, a believer in Jesus Christ, and B, in fellowship with him. And in the Old Testament, he said the same thing. He said, if you're not walking with me, then I'm not going to listen to your prayers. And when you have shifted into idolatry, whether it's overt idolatry or the idolatry of the mind, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to listen to your prayer. You make a lot of prayers, and I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. That's confession of sin. In that environment, it was to submit to the authority of God, and to go through the cleansing rituals. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the, for the widow. It's obedience. So then the next verse, which is what we'll get to next time. I keep putting, putting this off leading up to it. For the rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Rebellion is to subvert the authority of God. Now, why does he say rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft? Well, when we look at it, we'll see that witchcraft isn't witchcraft, it's divination. But it still relates to demonism. Why is any act of demonism, I mean any act of rebellion, children who are disobedient to their parents... Wives who are disobedient to their husbands, husbands who are disobedient to God, citizens who are disobedient to the leaders in the nation. Why is that like the sin of divination? Why is that? What is the issue here? And further he goes on to say that stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. So if we look at the parallelism, what we see is stubbornness is related to rebellion and the sin of divination is equivalent to iniquity and idolatry. So that when we disobey God, we're not any different from Satan. We're following in Satan's footsteps. And it's just as horrendous and egregious as if we were committing Satan's sin all over again. And so we're going to look at this next time. It's filled with significance. This is one of the greatest verses disobedience to God is Satanism. It puts us into the devil's world and following in the devil's footsteps. And we'll get back to that next week. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and 
to be reminded of your grace, but also to be reminded that grace has standards. And when we violate those standards, we are following in the footsteps of Satan. He is the father of lies. He is the fathers of all those who are disobedient to you, who think that they can set their will, their standard, over your will and your standard. Father, challenge us with what we've learned, but also remind us that in your grace you forgive us, you cleanse us, because you sent your Son who died on the cross for our sins, and by trusting in him we are cleansed and we are forgiven. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.